Welcome to Rise and Rouse, a podcast for people who give a damn. Thanks for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. This is your host, Erin Allgood, social impact strategist, consultant, and someone who cultivates deep and loving relationships. This week on Rise and Rouse, you'll hear my conversation with Bao Nguyen, one of my dearest friends and someone that I love more than words can adequately express. Bao is the shopkeeper at Finn, a Vietnamese coffee shop in the Little Saigon neighborhood in Seattle, where he practices heart-centered entrepreneurship, builds community, inspires introspection, and makes the best pandan waffles anyone could ever dream of. Our conversation is both a meditation and exploration. We talk about the importance of being in deep relationship with police, community, and one another across time and space and taking the long view when framing how we approach our work. Bao and I have long said that our conversations are podcast worthy, and now you get the opportunity to listen in. I am so excited to be here today with my very, very dear friend, Bao Wen, who is just been like the light of my life for years and years now. And we were always destined to do a podcast episode together, I think just because of the nature of every single one of our conversations is podcast worthy in one way or another. And so this is just this is just fate, really and truly. So Bao was born in Saigon, Vietnam, and immigrated to the U.S. in the mid-90s. He grew up in the White Center neighborhood of South Seattle with his family. And while attending the University of Washington for a bachelor's degree in chemistry, he fatefully stumbled into various jobs with local nonprofits, where he learned about community building, social justice, and leadership. He went on to open Finn, a Vietnamese coffee shop in Seattle's Little Saigon area, Uh, where he currently works practicing and exploring at the intersection of entrepreneurship, social change, spirituality, and his Vietnamese identity. So I'm going to hand it over to you to just, you know, fill in some of those gaps and share a little bit about your background and and how you arrived to today. Yeah, thank you so much, Aaron, for having me here. I mean, just like you said, like, I, I think I just, I'm channeling a lot of our previous conversations where, you know, we started out really just checking in with each other, but, you know, really ended up having such wild tangents, um, like you describe them. And I've always uh, left those conversations feeling more, more curious and more um, excited to, to, to explore. So I'm just happy to do this with you and have it be recorded and shared <laughs> with, with other folks. And hopefully some of that energy gets uh, transferred across the, the sound waves, too. Yeah, about myself. I mean, I, it's, it's kind of curious because, you know, me, I, you know, I love stories, you know, I love telling stories and hearing stories. And yet, as I was kind of thinking about this particular, my story for this podcast, yeah, like it, it just feels very hazy. And, and I think probably because as I get older and reflect more on my life, it feels like the only right answer to that is that I'm here because of, a series of fortunate events and, and coincidence. Uh, there's really not a way to describe it. I do want to zoom in on the fact that I am a Vietnamese immigrant, right? And I think because, one, I want to kind of note the impact of U.S. imperialism and European colonialism on, on my life. Um, and it's, it's an identity that I feel like I have in common with a large but distinct group of people, I guess. And, um, 
kind of helps put my life in some context. Um, like in the bio, it basically says I'm, you know, I was born in Vietnam and then I came to the U.S. And so um, there's a whole re- there's a whole complicated reason and history of why that w- that was possible or why that, that happened, right? And you know, as an as an and as a Vietnamese immigrant in in the U.S., uh, you know, I, I feel like I I grew up um, in a certain path um, that more or less was determined. Um, now every immigrant individual has, you know, their own um, journey to explore, but I think we can all share some commonalities in, in the way that we see ourselves um, vis-a-vis the U.S., um, you know, the U.S. American society. So, yeah. And what that means to me is that I, you know, ended up feeling quite um, lost and confused going through the U.S. education system. And that's why I ended up with a bachelor in chemistry. And that was, you know, it, there wasn't a whole lot of intentionality there. It was, it was a, not a decision that I made for myself. And I think it kind of speaks to a sense of being, you know, kind of torn apart from this wholeness um, of, of myself. And so I, mer- I remember graduating from, from UW with a ba- bachelor and not feeling very happy about it. And in fact, it was probably one of the lowest moments of my life because I had barely eat by, you know, I had a terrible GPA. Uh, all of the other, the, the higher level classes, I just really struggled through because there was no sense of purpose there. Like I, I didn't, I had no idea what I was doing, what I was learning. Well, I wasn't really learning anything because I wasn't, I was not present at all. Uh, yeah. So when I finished, uh, my bachelor degree, I was just like, what the fuck am I doing now? Uh, what, or what the fuck do I do now? I can't do anything with a bachelor in chemistry, a terrible GPA, uh, which would have excluded me from any opportunities of higher ed. Right. Uh, and probably the, the best I could have done in that, in that field was a lab tech. Um, and not to, you know, not to disparage any lab techs out there, but I also felt like it wasn't uh, my calling. But fortunately, I, as you mentioned, you know, there, I had found a job while in college working for an after-school drop-in program for the youth in my community of White Center, a low-income black and brown uh, neighborhood of Seattle where most, a lot of Vietnamese immigrants end up. It was there that I learned about poverty. It was there that I learned about social injustice because it was the only after-school program free after-school program. And it was provided by the county because the school district didn't have a lot of resources to provide um, these after-school programs for the kids. And so the county had to do it. And that really kind of kick-started my journey into questioning why resources are distributed the way that they are. And from there, I, I 
just found other jobs in kind of the same sector of, of community building, of social justice. And finally, after a few years doing that, I ended up at an organization called iLeap, where I met and a very wonderful executive director who, who was my, who became my boss and, and, and mentor. So we met when we were both in a master's program at the University of Vermont. We were both in transitional phases of our lives without actually, I think, knowing it. <laughs> Only in retrospect did we know that. <laughs> and I, I would like look back at that time and say that it was it was the thing that for me kind of kickstarted the path that I'm currently on because we our program was at leadership for sustainability which I think is just such a like doesn't even remotely like encapsulate like the depth of that program but that was where I already had like a basis of social justice and kind of like an understanding of systems of oppression and that is where I started to understand that with a lot more like understand the complexity a lot more and understand my role in actually addressing that. And at any rate, that was just my relationship with you, my relationship with other folks in that program, like were the were the reasons why I was able to love myself enough to like get divorced, was to like shift the focus of my business, to do all of these different things. And I think there was just, there was so much power in that at that time in our lives. And I'd love to hear you share just, you know, what that also meant to you. Yeah, do you remember the the night we officially met and and actually exchanged words? Of course, I do. I I don't feel like that's my story to tell. Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to recall that, and I do remember that night very vividly. I feel like, you know, a lot of my my friendships can't really tell the beginning of where it all started, but I feel like with you, I have a very clear like start to to this. Uh, this relationship, this friendship here. And yeah, I remember that night very vividly. It was just you, me, and Karen in that cabin by Lake Champlain. Everyone else had gone to sleep, I believe. And Karen and I, you know, we started talking earlier that day about our Asian American identity and being one of the few, very few people of color in that program. And Karen had asked me that night, right, yeah, what would I have done if I had shown up to this program of 16 people and I was the only person of color? I was, the, yeah. And I remember telling, saying to her that I would have left. And I think that that says a lot, right, about where I was in my development as a leader and in my comfort with the social dynamics and, and the race dynamics of this country. And partly because I grew up in White Center, like I mentioned, a predominantly black and brown um, community neighborhood. So all of my schooling experience had also been, it also allowed me to not interact, not engage with white people. So when I got to, and even all through my um career up to that point, I had worked only for organizations that were uh, run by people of color. So when I come to when I uh, came to that, uh, to, to the Mises program, and that retreat, uh, specifically, and saw for, for finally, f 
felt like a minority, very viscerally. That was my my flight, you know, uh, mechanism was. I want to get out of here. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. And part of it was we were expected, right, to to show up quite vulnerable, to share, to be quite intimate with with each other. And I had no idea how to do that with white people. Um, that was what I was feeling, and I think that was the first night, or no, or the second night of of the, the start of the program. Uh, you know, I'm very glad I stayed. <laughs> I'm very glad that that Karen was there as well to keep me grounded and keep me um, in the program. And I'm forever grateful for her. You know, and I remember because I, I also your presence in that room in that um, that conversation. I was aware of it, but it also felt unintrusive, and I felt like you you also held that space for us in some ways. Um, witnessed that. Conversation and witness what I had to say, and so I appreciate you being there as well. And I think that really helped. That really got our friendship to a great, great start. And I remember sitting there, and I think I was like coloring, and just I felt like such a tremendous honor to be in that space with both of you, and to and to bear witness to the conversation. And also, you know, I think so many white people want to like insert themselves into those conversations. And I was like, that's not my place to do that. And I, and then at some point I just kind of got up and went to bed and it was, and then we, and then the next day I think is when you and I had a conversation about it. Cause you were like, what was that like for you? I <laughs> 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 like breakfast the next morning. And I was like, Ooh. all right, let's talk about it. You know, like, so, and we, and then it just all went from there, but it's been, it was such a important part of my, the program for me too was just that that night and and being able to be there in that space with you both and to just and just to be able to yeah to bear witness was like a whole was a whole thing like we don't get to do that like very often I think without defensiveness without all of those different things coming to play I felt very yeah I felt incredibly lucky and honored to be able to do that yeah I think it was the first time I'd just been open and vulnerable in front of a white person just gave me that opportunity to um, start practicing. So thank you for that. And for me, you know, yeah, that program, um, the, the rest of the program was just transformative. And, I, you know, it, it's, it's like you mentioned, it was definitely a transitional moment in my life where I had just started to feel some, what I think I call now a sense of calling um, of what, I'm supposed to be doing in this life. And I think what the program meant to me was just the, how we want to show up in this world in the, at this time with all that we hold in ourselves, in our bodies, you know, whatever that might look like for us. And it took me quite a while to finish that program, but I'm so, I'm so very glad that I did. And, you know, I think Finn, uh, where I'm at right now is, is the culmination of that. Um, and the, um, certainly not the, the final uh, product, but certainly, but, not, but it is a chapter that, that continues from, from there. I think that it's just so beautiful that this coffee shop is a way that you get to explore your like leadership and express your leadership in the world. Because I don't think any, I don't think a lot of people would be like automatically like, yeah, coffee shop is totally like related to leadership, which is related to and then the piece around slowing down, which we haven't talked about yet. But like 
caffeine is oftentimes not associated with slowing down. But these are the things that you you've created this unique, beautiful space to allow that kind of the deep work that we need to do as a society becomes possible through the space that you've created. So talk to me a little bit just about Finn and about the partnerships and about just all of the ways in which it like this, you are you are so much a part of that business while also maintaining your own boundaries and not becoming the business, which I think is a is another really important point. But I want to hear about how that. I mean, I know the story, but other people don't. <laughs> of like what <laughs> you, what you were calling the story, yeah. But what were you calling forth when you decided to to start Finn? Yeah, coming out of the pro the master's program, what I was looking to do at that time was to kind of find a space to start playing, start exploring, start having fun. What we took away from the program was a set of tools and kind of a new way of, ex- of exploring, um, new ways of exploring, new ways of knowing, new ways of learning. So I was very kind of excited and anxious to start doing some of those things, uh, applying some of the things uh, that we've been so, so fortunate to, to learn. Lots of us have gone on to do many different things. And I was at that time didn't have a concrete job, so to speak. And now a lot of us have this dream of having a coffee shop. Now that one thing that I've learned for the last, from the last couple of years of, of, of being here at the coffee shop is that a lot of people think about having a coffee shop as their, their, you know, their, their kind of uh, daydream. And I was no different, you know, um, in fact, my parents uh, in Vietnam had run a, a small coffee shop as well uh, for a short while. And so I, I remember some, um, I was young then, so I, but I remember some memories of coming there, uh, being dropped off there after school and just hanging out and, you know, watching my mom and my aunts uh, work. And so that, that, that seed had already been planted in me. I had just been dormant for so many years until... 2019 when my partner and I were driving around one night and we were like man we really wanted a space to just sit and hang out and I remember what we were looking for was a Vietnamese coffee shop and what I mean by that is that coffee shops in Vietnam have traditionally been spaces of relaxation of socialization, of and actually a lot of it has been about spaces of reflection. You mentioned that coffee is often seen as a you know accelerant of of life, you know, of energy giving and productivity and all that. But that's actually that's typically a, a an American view of coffee. The coffee culture that I grew up in in Vietnam was kind of the opposite. Uh, people saw coffee as an opportunity to pause. Um, they saw coffee as an opportunity to build relationships, to just sit and think and observe. And oftentimes, uh, people hung out at coffee shops and would spend literally hours just sipping on a one drink, whether it be with a friend, with friends, or by themselves. And so... That was what we were missing. That was exactly what we wanted. And at that time, that kind of space was uh, non-existent uh, where in, in Seattle. 
And so that's kind of where the idea started for us. And we were fortunate enough to have the resources to even think about building a business. You know, such a privilege to 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 be, even be in a position, uh, um, that kind of position. So after talking about this for a while longer, um, we were happened to be driving around Little Saigon, you know, the economic and cultural hub of of Seattle uh, for the Vietnamese community in Seattle here, where we unsurprisingly spent a lot of time. We saw this space. Uh, it was, you know, in a new development, uh, an apartment building, but uh, with retail space. And we saw that the, the retail space was available and immediately caught our eye. I mean, it was, I knew that I wanted uh, a space in Little Saigon. Again, just for us, it, it feels like a second home. We had spent so much time here and had built a lot of relationships in this neighborhood that um, when it came time to open a business, it, it, it just made sense to be here. And so when we saw a space that was perfect uh, size, there was something that we can manage, that was when the idea really became um, solid and things, we started putting things in motion to, to do this. That was when I approached you to uh, help me kind of visualize this and also more, more very importantly to build a sound business plan out of uh these wild um ideas and yeah i think i think i, me- I mentioned to you in the beginning before we we you know started talking about this was um, how important it was for me to to show up to this community with care and reciprocity I wanted the coffee shop to make this community stronger, make it more vibrant, and to do it in a way that feels authentic to me. And it was an experiment in a lot of ways, I think, too, in you know, how do you bring these values of heart-centered entrepreneurship? How do you showcase your culture, too, in doing this all in, like, Arguably the coffee capital of the United States. <laughs> yeah. You, <laughs> when you yeah. told me you were like, I want to open a coffee shop in Seattle. I was like, okay, we could do this. <laughs> right. There's no shortage of coffee there. <laughs> There's no shortage of coffee here. There's, and also it's in a way, you know, because of where Seattle is uh, in relation to the coffee industry that it also made it more intimidating, right? Because it feels like, uh, folks here are very coffee savvy, and not only that, but also kind of very specific in their enjoying of coffee, enjoyment of coffee. And so we were going to do something quite different. But one of the core values of of the coffee shop that I wanted to bring was this kind of the relationship building part of it. You know, in in business, especially in coffee, we have to talk about um, customer relationship. That's a very you know basic uh, concept in, in building a business. But I wanted to go further than that. I wanted to pay attention to the quality of those relationships. And I wanted them to, I wanted them to create the conditions for them to develop further, to develop deeper than a mere kind of customer relationship. I wanted to see, to allow space for them to grow into something more. And so that was, uh, you know, a very intentional design uh, and 
something that I think is very complex, you know, we, because it's very un, unpredictable the way that we built this space so that um, for relationships that happen. So far, you know, it's been really exciting, really fun to, to see how some of these relationships have come out. Earlier this year, we collaborated with a few folks that I had met through the, uh, through the coffee shop to do an event uh, at the, the Wing Luke Museum here in Seattle. That event uh, was called Tung Lai, uh, which means future in Vietnamese. I had met uh, Duan, from, who's a staff member at the museum. I had met Oliver V, who's a trans Vietnamese photographer. And I had met um, a couple of fashion designers, uh, Tan and Nui, who, who co-owned the, the souvenir kind of fashion brand. And through several conversations, we ended up finding a lot of um, common grounds and questions. And so we had decided to work together to, you know, to explore uh, these questions around our Vietnamese identity that culminated in a, a community event where we got to hold space for conversations and also to express ourselves creatively. There was art involved. There was just a lot of love and beauty that came out of it. And then after the event ended, um, a few months later, I get an email from uh, the president of the Vietnamese Student Association at Seattle University here who had attended the event and was um, so touched by it that uh, they asked us, Finn, to come share our story to their student group. And so, you know, in a way, another relationship had just uh, developed because of this. It's just been really fun. Uh, to and deeply rewarding to have these relationships now um, to have to, to have these de relationships develop and and grow uh, into something more. I think this like the concept of relationship building community goes hand in hand with justice too. And so I'm, I'm really interested to hear how justice and community and like how all of those things are showing up in the coffee shop, like. What is what is the role of place in your work and how does that tie into your values as a as a person and as a shopkeeper? When we're talking about a place to put Finn, Little Saigon was the only neighborhood where we saw that as a possibility. Because this neighborhood saved us and so I, I you know i don't often tell this story but when my family first immigrated to the u.s we didn't go straight to seattle we actually landed in manchester new hampshire a place where i'm sure you're much more familiar with than a lot of <laughs> a lot of folks but we we ended up there because our sponsor family was there and back in 1995 manchester was very white i don't know how it is now but it was very white. And in May, it was still quite cold for a family from tropical Vietnam. And I remember my mom just crying every night because it was so lonely and so cold, literally and figuratively, right? And at that time, there was no easy communication um, with, with, with across the globe. After one month, that was it. Like, we couldn't handle it anymore. And um, 
my parents knew some folks in Seattle and they told us to, to come there, uh, to come here. And just after a month of, of um, our immigrant life, we packed everything up. And because we had no money, we took the Greyhound bus from New Hampshire to Seattle. And so that was a whole nother journey of, you know, four days or and four nights or something like that. And we came to Seattle because there was a Vietnamese community here. And there was a little Saigon here. There was a Chinatown here. And immediately it made our lives bearable. And it, made, it gave us a solid place to start building a new life. So, you know, when it came time for us to, to think about building a business, this was our thank you, our act of reciprocity to a neighborhood, to a community that, that, like I mentioned, helped save us. And Little Saigon right now is going through a lot of change. It's a 40, 50-year-old community. And so a lot of the, the buildings, a lot of the businesses are, are, are due for change, are for, due for redevelopment. But that also comes with a lot of um, uncertainty about its future. And as you probably know, you know, small businesses are, are the identity of the neighborhood um, because they, they stay around. They, 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 they bring people to the neighborhood. And what kind of small businesses or cluster of small businesses really defines a neighborhood, a community. We chose to be in Little Saigon because of that. We wanted to be, um, we wanted to contribute to um, the preservation and continuation of, you know, its namesake. So that's why this place is important to us. Why we chose to be here is, you know, has a lot to do with, with, with our history and our, our vision and our wish for, for this community. And I, I, you know, one of the things we had talked about as we were putting together your business plan is like, how do you give back to that community. And I mean, in so many ways, you're doing that, you're giving back, you know, just through the partnerships that you have, the fact that Wing Luke Museum is right around the corner, which I like super duper love. But there's, you also have right around the other side is, you know, this encampment, you know, for of houseless folks. And I know it was important for you to, to think about like, what does, what is Finn's role in being part of that community as well. Right. They are part of our community. They are not vagrants. They are not migrants. They're, they're, they, are part, they are people who are part of this community. I did study social justice. We did learn about that a lot. But the more I, you know, the more I grow and the more I look into justice, the less I know what it means, you know, the more fuzzy it gets. But I guess what I've learned, how, how I've learned to approach justice is through the lens of compassion, something that I feel much more equipped to, to, to think about and to, to practice. You know how like in the kind of the Western sim- symbol of justice is Lady Justice, right? This woman figure with holding a scale and with a blindfold and in the other hand is a sword. And I'm like, what kind of justice is a blind person waving a sword dealing out i don't know if i want to be anywhere near that (laughs) um i don't want my justice to be blind here i i kind of want 
a compassionate justice. I want justice that sees us as human beings, justice that sees us as people who are imperfect, that suffer. And, you know, my, my concept of compassion is really deeply rooted in the Buddhist tradition that I grew up in. And this is kind of interesting too, in the way that it translates and how much gets lost or twisted because in Vietnamese, compassion is to be, which means to remove or erase suffering. And you don't really get a sense of that in the word compassion. I don't know, you break down the etymology of the word compassion. I don't feel like it's the same. But for us in the Buddhist tradition, compassion is an act of removing or relieving, alleviating suffering from others and from ourselves ultimately. And so with Finn, it was very important that, that I practice, um, that I bring that practice of compassion into this work. Part of that practice is to leave room, um, to do the hard human things. You know, it's, it's, it's easy for us to practice compassion with a friend or a customer who comes in and orders and you know, stays quiet. Like, I don't, you don't get brownie points for, do, for, for being nice to uh, somebody who's being nice to you. I mean, it's, it's obviously, it's, 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 it's pleasant. But the, the practice is when an unhoused person comes and asks for water or asks to use the bathroom or sits down at our outside table and start using, you know, whatever. That's the hard practice of compassion. And I, you know, wanted to leave room for those instances. And I do that by, there are many businesses here that would put up a sign that says no public bathroom. There is even a Seattle Police Department program where you can preemptively allow police officers to remove folks from your doorsteps by, you know, signing up for the program and that kind of gives them permission to come. So we do neither of those things, <laughs> you know, um, and because... Because I feel like that's not justice, you know, and that's not a compassionate thing to do. It's, it certainly leads to unpleasant interactions, but I feel like those are the real challenge, the real opportunities to practice, um, compassion and empathy. And, you know, and actually I feel like it overall, it makes thin, it makes this coffee shop a space that receives and you know, holds like people as whole human beings and not simply as, you know, opportunities for, for business and transactions. By not having those signs up, I feel like it signifies this space as something different. Yeah. I think that it would be so much better if like in our capitalistic society that we could actually shift to more relational ways of being versus transactional. And I mean, I think it's one of those things like I encounter so much in my work is like, how do we, you know, how do we move beyond that? Because it's not swimming in this culture. It's so we're so conditioned to just feel like, yep, that transaction's done and we're and we move on from there. You know, it's it's like the emphasis on the bottom line. It's the emphasis on, you know, all of those things that that we have to step forward first with profit versus people, planet, any of those other things. And I, yeah, and I think and we're, it's, yeah. well, I'm just going to, I just wanted to, to 
just a little tangent. It's like, can you imagine? I mean, actually, I think I don't know any specific places, but I I feel like there is some. There are places that would put up a Black Lives Matter sign, a rainbow flag, and still no public restroom. And I feel like that, you know, feels very problematic in some ways, right? That you're honoring certain values, but then upholding other that contradictory values. I feel like I, I can't remember if it was you I talked to about this, but there was somebody who was telling me a story about like, you know, a barbershop in their community that had a Black Lives Matter sign. And somebody walked in and was like, oh, well, do you know how to actually cut black hair, style black hair? And they were like, no. And it's like, oh, okay. Like, okay. Just that performative aspect right. of things is so, right. so right. real. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like when I start looking up for, for these signs now, like. <laughs> You're just going to troll all the businesses in Seattle. <laughs> no, but I, I won't, but I'll definitely keep a, keep a personal log. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, you are one of my favorite change makers in the world, obviously. And I also have such an interesting feeling about that term. But what I want to say is like, so for you, you know, what does it mean to actually give a damn? You know, and I, I think one of the things we've talked about before is that this idea of giving a damn can cross physical and temporal boundaries. And that's like such a sexy way of, I think, describing that. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, we're crossing physical and time barriers here. And I don't mean that in like a new age metaphysical kind of way either. I really wanted to make this concrete because one of the one of the most influential essays I, I've read in recent years has been this piece by Dr. Wayne Yang, an ethnic studies professor at UC San Diego, um, who wrote about a concept called deep organizing. And well, in the, like the way that he describes it is like, you know, how when we talk about organizing currently, it, it kind of typically is centered around political organizing um, for political gains, for uh, organizing against established power or to attain power. Um, but um, how Dr. Yang defines deep organizing is that it, it goes, you know, kind of the name would apply deeper than that. It is organizing vitally and what that means for him is that to, to figure out ways of being, ways of relating, so that um, uh, our lives, our collective life, can continue um, intergenerationally. For me, the word intergenerationally is really interesting in this concept because when we think about the word generationally, we often think about it going forward. But he, I think he uses the word intergenerationally to, to mean that we also look back and honor the gifts from, from past generations. So, and use those gifts so that to make life, um, a reality for, for future ones. Um, and so when I read that piece, it was just jaw dropping for a couple of reasons. One, it was super interesting. And two, I've, it also felt very familiar, like something I've already been doing, something that I kind of, the space that I've already been kind of playing in. It just kind of now has a, a, a nice framework for me to, to start thinking about it some more, right? Uh, and so 
so this is the framework the, that I've been playing around a lot in and thinking about how we create change um, that the framework for me to think about um, change making in in that in seeing ourselves in seeing myself as part of a long long um, timeline where I'm in the middle of this timeline and then extends back you know thousands and millions of years and it extends forward thousands and millions of years and not just time but how our impact can you know uh, be felt not only across this globe but across the solar system across the universe um, and it's free it, it, and it's very freeing in a way because um, in looking at change this way there's no final product there's no final achievement you know um, another person that I really look up to is Grace Lee Boggs and she you know at the end of her uh, toward the end of her life um, she was still fighting she was still a revolutionary she was still like lit and um, I think, you know, folks ask her, like, what, what keeps her going after all these years? And the, the way that she, she answered that was that she said, you know, it's the realization that there is no final struggle. Whether you win or lose, each struggle is bring forth new questions, new contradictions, um, new opportunities to explore. And so when we expand our change-making boundaries in this way, you know, across physical and, and, and temporal boundaries, it becomes, the freeing part for me comes from knowing that it is a forever journey, you know. So I don't tie my work toward any kind of um, utopic vision, you know. Um, and, and I feel like that's, that attachment is what's causing a lot of the burnout that we talk about in the, the social change um, arena is folks keep working and working and working and then never seeing, and not only not seeing a change, but seeing things get worse when they look outside, you know? And it can be very demoralizing. But in, in, in the framework of deep organizing, you are organizing for um, change that you might not see in this lifetime. And so how do we plan for that? How do you show up today so that um, your impact is still positive, not only seven generations later, but 700 generations later? Yeah, it's a question that I, I find a lot of joy in, in, in thinking about. Well, that's fucking amazing. Just gave me chills. This is like totally dorky, but I've been watching, um, rewatching all of the Star Wars shows, all the new ones, all the old ones. I just got to New Hope, which is the first of the original trilogy. And having watched all of everything that preceded that, it makes me think about the fact, you know, that, you know, because there are generations that are fighting as part of that rebellion. And, you know, and we know that it continues on into the future, you know, because there's there's more movies, <laughs> there's more series. It makes me it makes me think about how a lot of the work that we are doing that that this the struggle is universal in a lot of ways. And 
that it's like you're saying, it's not a utopic kind of vision that we're working towards, but it is this idea that we are ever inching our way towards a better future for future generations slowly but surely. And, and some of the only things that we do have control over are the ways in which we show up to that work. I don't know if that's profound or idiotic, but, (laughs) but there was just like, you know, there's like, there's like, where, where can we, (laughs) there we go. Yeah. Just that it's, that it is okay for us to also recognize our own limitations and, and truly to be sustainable in this, in the struggle is to, is to take care of ourselves and those around us. Yeah, Grace Lee Bob says another um, really cool uh, quote around that is that we don't pick the times that we live in, but we can choose how we show up in it and how we think about it. We talked about a little bit about hope, and you know, it it it. I have a I have a fraught relationship with with hope because when I when I look outside and read the news, um, it feels, it feels very, um, I I don't want to say hopeless, but not very hopeful either. And yet, I think I said to you before that I don't, I don't, I, not a lot of things bring me hope, but I also feel, um, hopeful because of these conversations, um, because there is a response to the things that are happening in the world, the, the, the unjust things, the things that cause is causing more harm and suffering. There is a response to that. And this is one of like this converse, these conversations is one of those responses, And it, it brings me a lot of joy to be part of it, to be part of the, the, the response as well. And so I feel more hopeful after having this conversation with you. And actually, after 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 every conversation with you, I feel more helpful. And so, um, there's my updated answer to that the question around hope. Mm, I feel the same way. I feel like I created this podcast literally to help me feel less hopeless in the moment, and 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 in a way to recommit to the work that I do. You know, because like we were talking about, it can be it's it is hard to do this work and. And when we try to do this work in a vacuum without others around us, there's no other option, I think, but to burn out. I recommit over and over to community when I do this work and to others that are in my life. And I'm just very, I'm just so grateful and honored that you chose to do, to have this conversation with me today, because anytime we get an opportunity to talk to one another, it like touches my soul in a way that nothing else does. And God damn it. I love you so much. Like, I can't wait for like more generations, like for, uh, for us to like continue out this generation and do the, and just to see what the next couple decades will bring us because being in relationship with one another over space and time, what a beautiful way to kind of experience life. Yeah. The love is, is reciprocal as we say in the program, right? More than ever now, I think Adrienne Maria Brown says this but i think she's like it's she said it's not so much about critical mass anymore and critical relationships relationships that are generative and relationships that are change making that are impactful and so i feel like 
yeah, critical relationships are, yeah. Um, and, and I think we're both doing similar work in the sense of making space for critical relationships to happen. Me with, within the coffee shop here and you with this podcast and the conversations you're having is, I feel like toward critical relationships. And you know, I feel like we've already, we already have one, but it gets deeper and more exciting and more, um, vibrant every time we talk and so i'm very happy to be here and be with you and i'm excited across time and across space and i think that there's ripple effects that'll come from these conversations and from the critical relationship that we have too again i'm just so grateful for your time for your energy just honored to know you and i love you so much and this will probably not be the last time that we have a conversation on the podcast i bet we'll be having more of these so but thank you so much for being with me Thank you, Aaron. Thank you to Bao Nguyen for joining me in conversation today. If you want to learn more about his work, you can check out finseattle.com or follow them on Instagram. Check the show notes for links. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review to help us reach more people. Make sure to follow Rise and Rouse wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss your chance to hear from someone who gives a damn. Follow us on Instagram at Rise and Rouse and sign up for my newsletter by going to allgoodstrategies.com. Rise and Rouse is created and hosted by me, Erin Allgood. It is produced and edited by Steph George of Stefania Audio. Production support from Grace Cleary-Morin and Yana Krasanova. Our theme music is written and produced by Chris Marion. 